was hard for me to understand the larger cultural and political systems that we were defying by paving our own way as two young women paddling north for three months. If you've ever wondered what to do with your summer and considered one, making history, two, spending the whole thing on a wild 2,000-mile canoe trip, and three, putting your relationship with your best friend to the ultimate test, then you know exactly how author Natalie Warren feels. In the summer after graduating college, Natalie and Anne Rejo set off on the banks of the Minnesota River with the ultimate goal of reaching the Arctic waters of Canada's Hudson Bay in 90 days or less. Natalie writes all about their journey in her book, Hudson Bay Bound, and is here today to chat with another history-making explorer, Anne Bancroft, who, along with Liev Arneson, were the first two women to cross Antarctica. This conversation was recorded in October 2020. Hi, I'm Natalie Warren. I'm a paddler. I'm a mother, scholar, environmentalist, and author of Hudson Bay Bound. And I'm Ann Bancroft. I'm a polar explorer, um, an educator, and delighted to be here. I am thrilled that you are here, Ann. I think it's about nine years ago, almost a decade, that I first met you on the shores of the Mississippi River. That's right. It doesn't feel that long ago, but um, <laughs> there was so much excitement in the air that day. It was great. Yes. And you've just been a uh, a wonderful uh, role model, mentor, inspiration, sounding board, and friend uh, for me over the years. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of the themes in my book. I wanted to <laughs> chat first about the perhaps biggest theme and most difficult for me to articulate as I was writing the book and even still today. And, and that's really why it's so important that we were two women doing this expedition. At the time that we were doing the trip, I didn't fully understand the importance of being two women embarking on an expedition of that magnitude. And when people asked us about it, we would just say, oh, we're just, we're lucky to be the first two women. I don't know why two women haven't done this before. You know, like anyone can paddle if they have arms, you know? So we were just kind of laughing it off at the beginning. And it was hard for me to understand the larger cultural and political systems that we were defying by paving our own way as two young women paddling north for three months. So in the book, I talk about the email we received from a sales rep where we were planning our trip that was riddled with problems, but really posed the question, like, why would I fund your vacation? And now nearly a decade later, I look back and I'm like, well, that was a really valuable experience for me as a woman, but also I can see the ripples that it made culturally and politically. So I'm wondering what you think of, like why you think all female expeditions are important and how you've been able to articulate that. I want to go back just for a second, if I can, and say that in reading your book, I felt a tremendous amount of parallels to my own experiences. And one of them is just what you're articulating and wanting to talk about now is the importance of, as women, of, of venturing forward and following our passion. And sometimes in the course of, of doing that, writing women into history and doing something that women haven't outwardly done before that, you know, is sort of on the page and in people's consciousness. Because I felt the same way in 1985 getting ready mm -hmm. for the North Pole trip, I just wanted to do it. It was my 10-year-old girl dream right. um, to, 
to go to the far reaches of the north, you know, as a Minnesotan, you just look north all the time and <laughs> and dream. And um, I wasn't thinking of the significance of being the only woman, the first woman that was not sort of in my uh, fabric. I just wanted to go. And like you, it became more and more important to write about it, to talk about these trips, to try and um, bring it forward in the consciousness of others, boys and girls and all sorts of people. And it's been a really interesting, I mean, I don't know how many years ago that was, 1986, we were at the top of the world. It still shows me that there's work to be done in terms of uh, gender equity, for sure. Um, people are still amazed. They still have mythology around the way you should look to go up there or down there, wherever you're going, you know, you have to be big and burly or something like that. The outdoor world still has that sort of um, dressing to it. And of course, you and I know that it's not about that. It's about passion. It's about skill. It's about working together, most importantly. Um, it isn't about your physical size. And I think women do it better than men in some regards. Certainly from a phys physiology standpoint, being in cold environments for a long period of time, women are actually better suited. We have a little extra layer of body fat that we sometimes curse <laughs> as child bearers. And you know this well, just having yeah. had your first child. Uh, we're more efficient physio physiologically. You know, we don't need as much to eat or drink. And so we don't give off as much. You know, it's just like, uh, but I also think our temperament and our creative way of of problem solving and communicating is not necessarily better, but it's different. And it needs to be in the equation as as we head out and whatever the makeup of the team. But I think it's really important um, and a treasure to to travel with all women. You know, most of my life had been where I was the only woman because there just wasn't a lot of my female friends wanting to do what I was doing. And I sort of look at it as, like you, there was certainly initially that surprise, but also that sense of privilege to be the first and to figure out what to do with it um, and what to do with that platform is the way I sort of frame it. But I also get aggravated as well that in this day and age, it's still sort of a phenomenon, you know? and I, I want us to be further along, and yet the flip side of my coin is, but how lucky am I that in some ways we weren't, because what an experience it has afforded me. Yes, absolutely. I think about that a lot, too. It's still amazing when two women decide to do something that if two men were doing it today, people wouldn't think so much about it. And I've been thinking a lot about it because there have been major improvements in terms of um, like elevating women in society. And at the end of the day, though, you still go to that like family dinner. And the first question is like, do you have a boyfriend or um, are you, you know, like the questions that we get from people that just seem harmless sometimes can be almost microaggressions or telling us what we should be doing and when we should be doing it, um, that I think is still very, very prevalent. 
in society and directing people, especially women, towards a specific path that we're told that we should take. And I think that's why it's still so surprising when women do something like a large outdoor expedition, because we are actively defying these subtle and sometimes not so subtle social cues that we've been getting our entire lives. Yeah, I've loved the lessons that my major expeditions have put forward in terms of expectations. And then when they get, you know, when you do the expeditions, a lot of those expectations or, you know, just the the notions that people have about you and what you're capable of. I love those that break down as the story unfolds. Um, you know, I've been doing this for so long in my life and it, on the one hand, so much has changed. And on the other hand, sort of so little has changed. <laughs> and I, I know, and I've been so lucky that I've been able to, my polar expeditions in particular have sort of punctuated these time chunks you know, from 86 to 92, you know, to 2000, mm -hmm. these big expeditions, and you you get to mark what what has changed from, you know, you started off talking about trying to get funding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in nine, in my early uh, 1992 expedition to the South Pole, and uh, we couldn't get any sponsorship. So, you know, they just looked at us like, we can't risk it. Even if we like what you're doing, uh, we don't, you know, another one would say you, you're just not big enough or, you know, or why not take a dog, you know, anything. To, <laughs> yeah. just, and, you know, and once we did it, you know, we sort of bootstrapped our, our way to the South Pole. It changed a few minds, but not, not enough. And it's still a struggle. And you still come up against people who, and men and women, by the way, who look at me, and I bet you you get this too, because you're far more petite, but people would say, you're so little to have done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I go, nobody has ever called me little before, but okay. <laughs> and that's the mythology part that I just love busting. But you get to see over time with these expeditions, the movement that our society has um, embarked on or lack thereof, you know, it just depends, but it's been such a lovely privilege for me to have had this long career in an area where so few people have traveled and definitely so few women. So it gives me this, this real, uh, window into, I think a lot of the subtleties of sexism and uh, the inequalities to uh, opportunity. We had moments on our expedition that I reflect on in the book where I was constantly thinking, would this be happening to us if we were two men? And it, the answer is you don't know for sure, but it's a feeling more than anything when uh, somebody is overly concerned about you or uh, tells us that we need to get a dog for protection or, you know, we got preyed on a lot. And on Lake Winnipeg, we had that older couple who just didn't want us to leave their site because I think they were worried about us on a big lake. And in all of those moments, something would 
it, it was an embodied sort of visceral feeling that told me that those were moments of sexism. Um, and, and that's where I, I've been struggling to articulate exactly why. And you could argue it in circles with someone about how people would have said or done the same thing if we were two men. But at the end of the day, it's this feeling that I remember from all the trips that I've taken and even just small interactions that I have today that sort of compile over time for me to better understand why it's so important and why we were so lucky to be able to be women doing that because those accumulate to be a very, very large barrier at the end of the day. Yeah, in some ways, you know, my North Pole trip, because I travel with seven men and 49 male dogs, um, (laughs) gave me personally because I was an elementary school teacher and my environment, my work environment was predominantly female. I thought, you know, I knew what sexism was and all of that. And um, when I got up on the ice and I was living with these seven guys who are like my brothers and we're still friends to this day, you know, we're living together in a remoteness, which was really important for where I learned the lesson. I, I felt this subtle sexism and, you know, from people that care about you and love you. And we still joke about it today. And I'm still struggling with how to write about those difficult moments. But in on that trip, I was able to articulate certain stories because I knew the word sexism was just, it just rattled mostly men. So I was struggling with what lexicon to choose from, what words to utilize to tell the story. And then I realized, just tell the story. Don't use don't worry about the words. Don't don't lecture about sexism. Um, just tell the story and let them feel through the story what you felt. And that was wonderful because the story always delivered and people got it. All ages, both sexes. They understood, you know, just what was going down. It became harder. And this is where I identify with what you just said. It became harder to articulate those stories when we were all women, um, because like you, it was a gut feeling. It was, you know, that gut feeling with question. I wonder if this would be happening if we were men or if we had a man in the group or it's much harder to pinpoint it when you're all women and you're feeling it. But what you do know is that you don't have to prove yourself to your team members when they're all women. It's just you you get that mess out of the way. It's not even there. But in an in a predominantly male group, you never lose that sense of I can't falter because somebody will make the assumption it's because I'm too small, I'm a woman, I'm this and that. And you know, you don't have that when you're with all women and it's such a lovely way to start, you know, an epic dream expedition. Absolutely. That's a great point. And Anne and I, I mean, expeditions, my favorite part about them is that really all you have to think about is moving and staying safe and what you're going to eat next and where you're going to camp. So not having that extra layer in the dynamic of having to constantly prove yourself and your ability was an absolute privilege for traveling with Anne Rejo. So (laughs) I was wondering, you have been very active environmentally throughout your life, um, especially pertaining to water. 
And I was wondering, how have your expeditions shaped your relationship with the natural world? That's such a great question. And I'm not sure I've really thought about it in that way. Believe it or not, I, I say a lot that I feel so privileged. I mean, I have been so lucky to travel to places where so few have, and they're often quite stark environments. So they can be really nasty one second and you can blink and then they're just like glorious. <laughs> it all depends on the wind and the, the temperature and things like that. But And the sun um, can make such a big difference. But I think I, I've also been so privileged that I grew up in a rural setting. I live in a rural setting now. So I just feel so, I guess, attuned to nature. It is it helps me navigate the rest of the world, the, the world that you actually exist in most of the time. It's where I feel the best about myself. And I, you know, it was my refuge as a shy kid, um, not a very good student with the learning difference, but, you know, all of that, it was my refuge and it remains so. I mean, I can't imagine trying to write or trying to work at the desk without going out and walking. That's that's the way, you know, that it sort of loosens the bolts up a little bit. And and I'm always stunned. I, you know, I'm 65 years old and I'm still astonished when you look out the window as I'm doing right now and it's it's so glorious that it just sort of brings you to your knees and that there's absolutely no words said or need to be said. It just it does it. And I think that's just such a powerful, powerful um, element. And I, I worry about not having enough green space for, you know, your little Lucy and clean water. And, you know, I, I, I worry about what we're doing to this planet because it is so integral to who we are as human beings. And, and that's where I struggle to find articulation. Um, why is it that, you know, we uh, need to be connected to the natural world? And we've modernized ourselves so much that I think so many people are disconnected. And it's such a gift when you're able to open up their eyes, you know, on a walk or whatever it is that you do with somebody who's not really entered the world or been aware of it around them. And you don't have to go so far, you know, you could just go right, right out the door. but I think, you know, you and I and our friends have this wonderful sort of perspective because we've been able to travel and get to know the natural world that demands your honesty, you know, who you are, the way you show up in it is is everything, you know, and if you can't fake it, when you fake it, you get into trouble. We've learned a lot from our the world around us, and I think... You and I both are trying to share those learnings with others so that they can have those awakenings as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think mental health is a huge component of that. I always feel like I'm being called back to the river and I can't always respond, but it's all, it's this dull, it's waiting for me or I, I need to get back to it. And um, it depends on the responsibilities in life. I mean, I look out my window right now in the city and I see my neighbor's Trump flag. So it's very different from looking out your window right now. Um, it's not as not as peaceful. 
but I, I do think that people are supposed to live in that like systematic uh, way in nature where we're all supposed to ebb and flow together. And we've become so disconnected with um, all of the destruction that we've done to the environment, but also how we've removed ourselves from the environment over time into this sort of paved brick infrastructure, um, fences, all of these things that keep us not only from other people, but from nature itself. And now thinking about my daughter, what have I learned that I think is the most important? And it's not how to be a good student, or it's not um, like, I want you to succeed in your profession and career. It's I want you to be, to, to have good mental health. And I know that that comes from time in nature and being able to um, step away from the busyness that is everything else. And I think if, if I can instill that in her uh, with the help of people like you, um, then like, I know that she will have a good life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting with all of this COVID stuff going on. Uh, People are out more, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's, I, I always think that there's silver linings to the storms, you know, and the storm that we're in now, in some ways, has provided people with a, a new opportunity to go outside where they wouldn't. I, I've never seen so many walkers in the countryside, you know, just, I'm like, I don't know who you are, you know, because they haven't <laughs> been out. And people, I've been, uh, I moved, so I was getting rid of a lot of expedition gear that accumulates over time. And people were just scooping it up because they're going to go snowshoeing for the very first time or skiing, or they're anticipating this disruption in their life this winter. And so they're try- they're creatively trying to figure out other things to do, which they would have never done before. And I just, I just, it brings a smile to my face every time. I'm like, I have never sold so many camping pads in all my life, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. And it starts with like all of the parks around Minneapolis right now are so busy that people are starting to look further and further out and going camping overnight and, uh, you know, that, that transition almost from, oh, I go to a campground at a state park to, oh, it'd be cool to camp in the wilderness in our own site. And then just how it expands from there. You touch on a good point here, which is, I think, uh, time spent in nature, whatever nature means to whoever is in it, really has a, a positive impact on that person and potentially the, the environment in the long run, even though we are going out into the environment and, you know, you're managing these groups of people in natural spaces. For me, the time that I've spent in the outdoors is the reason why I care so much about environmental issues um, politically. It's because I've, I've seen it. I've been in the space. I've seen the tundra and I've, you know, paddled the Mississippi and I've seen, you know, what things could be and what they are now and the importance of Um, cleaning up our water and thinking about how everything is connected and works together. And that really starts with a walk in the woods and starting to make the connections between the trees and the leaves and the soil or getting excited about a flower that you don't know the name of. And then you can really develop your environmental ethic 
just by starting to experience the environment itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think when you love something that gives you the impetus to want to protect it. And in the case of the environment, that's, it's a lifelong effort. It does, it's not going to be magic. We're not going to save the boundary waters in one sweep. Uh, you know, I, I feel like in terms of that issue, you know, I was fighting that when I was in uh, college. And so, you know, it, it comes and it goes and our, you know, there's different politicians, there's, you know, life spins differently. So our, our efforts to engage others um, and help open their eyes and find the same astonishment that we have found in the natural world is a lifelong effort. And our efforts to protect it follow that. I'm sure you felt this too. The, what happens on an expedition happens in life. So, you know, we're taking one step in front of the other and eventually you get somewhere, but you learn that it doesn't necessarily come quickly. It takes work. I always remind people that I chose to do these expeditions. I love them. They're the hardest things I've ever done in my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> physically and emotionally. You know, everything is sort of hard fought. And I think, at least in this country, we've, we tell young people all the time, we've been doing this for decades, you know, follow your dreams, follow your heart. Well, dreams are hard won. And so I think when we encourage young people to follow their dreams and be who they need to be, which I wholeheartedly endorse, we also have to finish that narrative with talking about what it takes. Uh, My dream as a 10-year-old girl after coming across the endurance book on my parents' bookshelf about Ernest Shackleton didn't come until I was 47. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and there's many mishaps along the way. And what a wonderful ride that is. You know, so it's fun to not only introduce the wilderness to people, but to to really utilize those stories to develop and encourage them to engage in wherever they are on that spectrum with the natural world. So adventure can be in your own backyard, right in the heart of a city. Uh, there is green spaces. And so how do we find those and engage with those and open our eyes wide open to find the amazement of, you know, a bug that you don't know or a flower you don't know? I mean, every day I find something new just by simply looking down. And following you on Instagram is a great pleasure because I'm like, (laughs) here's a picture of a mushroom. But I know that this mushroom, like, it's it's just you are a form of activism in the things that you do that might seem just commonplace, but they have so much impact and power in just knowing that you are walking through the woods and observing those things, I think. Well, it's my it's my cryptic political commentary, actually, through nature. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So thinking about how what happens in expeditions happens in life. It's something that I reflected on in the book or or tried to because expeditions have really taught me that nothing really matters that I usually think matters in my normal life. Um, not, Not that they're not important. Like it's important that we take care of people. It's important that we take care of humanity. It's those things. 
matter. But when you are just worrying about staying alive and staying fed and staying warm, it really changes the perspective on what we are so anxious about in our day-to-day lives. And I remember at the end of the trip thinking that the trip was an entire lifetime. It was it was really challenging paddling upstream and you couldn't stop paddling for a second or else you would float backward. <laughs> but then you get to the Red River and you're like, you're flying and it's kind of boring after a while. You're just going fast. And, you know, I'm thinking like, maybe that's when you have the, the job that you have been wanting and you're making good money. And then you're like, wait, but what's the point? And then you're, you're on this massive lake where things hit you so quickly and so unexpectedly um, that you have to, to cope with and use the skills that you've built from the challenging times and the, the leisurely times to get by that um, and realize that you have very little control over your life. And then, you know, the Hayes River, you've like built up this wisdom and you're using all these technical skills. And then in the book, I sort of allude to, you know, if the if the expedition is really a full lifetime, the end would be sort of floating out into Hudson Bay. Uh, but it really did feel like everything that I've learned from my trips have been parallel to different stages in my life. And I'm sure will continue to be that way. So I, I really love that you said that what happens on an expedition happens in life. Well, and I love your analogy. Our time on the rivers, on the water was a lifetime. <laughs> it mean, does feel that way. <laughs> it does. And how lucky are we that, you know, in a way we can pull away like that and all the noise is gone. We're not hooked up. You know, what matters is the person in the bow and that you're taking care of each other and you're paying attention to the weather and the changes and you're you're able to feel the subtleties of, you know, your first week and your last week and the the tone of your muscles and your shoulders, you know, it's like and and your nut brown body, you know, it's like that's <laughs> all that's all that's there. And then you you reimmerse and that's also another kind of shock and another kind of learning when you enter back into the world where we spend most of our time. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest shock for me is always uh, finding a bathroom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're just used to peeing, you know, like you wait until the, you're like, oh, I have to pee right now. And then you just squat. And I remember being in New York City of all places and realizing I had to pee, but, you know, far too late and then trying to find a bathroom and just being like, oh, I wish I were back in the wilderness. Uh, yeah, but lo- lots of other lots of other shocks when you return to the world as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that's, that's actually returning to the world has been one of the bigger challenges in a lot of ways when we're gone so long. I don't know about you and Anne, but when Leave and I travel, Leave is my Norwegian ski partner, and we've been traveling together yeah, for 20 plus years. And oftentimes we don't talk. Of course, on the, you know, in the Antarctic, you can't really, the wind is in your face, you're in single file, and you're just, you know, you're behind a face mask and everything. So it's not very conducive to conversation. And then we're both introverts, and, you know, you're tired. So, <laughs> But we have this language, you know, that is nonverbal, um, that connects us. But coming back into the rest of the world, 
uh, from that silence uh, after 100 days, it's, it takes all of your accumulative expedition life to sort of bolster yourself to do it. And you learn skills about how to do it with grace. And because you're, you know, as you know, you and Anne, your job didn't end when you finished on that distant shore. You had to share the experience. Uh, you had people to thank and greet. And so in a way, the expedition is just in a different phase um, as you re-enter, but you're still in a way working. And so there isn't that internal uh, reflection time that you got when you were on the water. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the hardest part of the expedition was writing a book about it. <laughs> you know, it's when you're there, that's, that's the fun part. And then people, like you're saying, say, oh, that was, that must've been really challenging. You were in storms and camping through bad weather. Like, No, that was the, that was the best part. And this is the hard part is figuring out how to talk about it. Yeah. You know, you're writing the story and it's predominantly your story, but you, you know, you're, you've got to write about Anne. She's your buddy, you know, she's your best friend. She did the experience, but you, you know, you have challenges. And how do you write an honest account about your friend and the, you know, sort of the interpersonal moments that were a, a challenge? Yeah, that's a great, great question. It was, I, I often joke that I, I just wrote a book about Anne and more so than the trip, I tried to really bring in our relationship to it. Sometimes it was awkward. <laughs> to talk to her uh, and just and just check in I'd be like well you know I'm, I'm writing this book basically about you and she's like oh okay and I think for a while she thought like oh Natalie's just writing some stories and then you know I remember I, when I told her I was getting it published she was like wow okay this is real <laughs> like I don't you know do you, and there, there are certain things that we talked about that Anne was pretty specific she she didn't want public. Um, and so we, I had to sort of play this delicate dance of, you know, how do I express these arguments that we had from my point of view, which as we all know, when you're talking your point of view from an argument, you, there's always another side to it. It's just the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting lesson or, or, activity for me to have done to try to paint both sides as best as possible while still being very very biased in in my own experience of course as I wrote about those stories and uh, John my partner always jokes that I was writing a historical fiction novel <laughs> because Anne and I would get together and I don't know if you have this with leave too, but I'll say something like, Oh, remember on our trip when this happened and Anne's like, that happened. <laughs> like, Yeah. You don't remember that? She's like, no, like I'm pretty sure this happened. Uh, like, you know, recently we were talking with all the fires going on out West. Um, and Anne was telling me about these helicopters that were picking up barrels of water and dumping them on the fire. And I said, well, remember when that plane on Lake Winnipeg had a big barrel on the bottom, it was picking up water right near us while we were paddling and dumping it on the fires uh, just east of us. And she's like, no. I was like, what? 
you know, it's like as as time goes by, you sort of repress things and remember things. And at the end of the day, you're questioning like what what really happened here if the two people who were there can't agree on it. That's right. Well, you know, we wrote Leave and I wrote our book together. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of talking beforehand about how to, you know, we both wanted, for instance, to be totally honest, because we feel like that's what nature demands of us. And so we should give that if we're going to recount the story. And we also said, well, we don't want to go, you write one chapter, I write the other. But we started, you know, we had our journals, as you did, and what we learned from it, and the book was the hardest thing on our friendship. And what we learned was that even though we experienced the exact same thing um, and wrote about it that night, you know, so not very many hours later, you interpret the exact same moment uh, differently. And uh, we were, I remember (laughs) sort of saying, but my journal says so, so therefore. (laughs) And then she'd go, well, my journal says this. And I go, well, it's in Norwegian. I can't read it. So I don't try to read it up. (laughs) But we had, we had really hard, hard uh, moments. And then later we have to go walking and just, you know, when we get together, of course, she's in Norway and I'm in Minnesota to work it out and just, it, it, and of course, what what does that do? But deepen your friendship. Either it breaks it or it, it deepens it. And yeah. it was such a good learning that that your journals are not the Bible, and that people, you know, that's four four eyes, not not two, and they see different things, and you reinterpret, and your memory, as you said, as the as you know, for us, it's twenty years ago. Um, mm-hmm. The trip takes on different meaning and the stories change over time as we, you know, I used to listen to my father who was a consummate storyteller and, and we all would look at each other and go, well, that story is evolving. Um, <laughs> so is ours. And so it's it's given us because we lecture sometimes together, too. And you just have to let it go. You You can't say it's not true because it's her truth. Right. Exactly. And being able to go through not only the expedition, but I imagine that process of writing a book together and still being, you know, sisters and best friends at the end, I think is a really good mark for the importance of having those challenges in our relationships because they they end up being our most valuable relationships. And when I think back to the big fight that Anne and I had on Lake Winnipeg. She is, she is the person that I have had the most conflict with, and she is the person who is closest to my heart. So it's in expeditions, those things really come out because you really have no choice. What are you going to, you know, paddle back home by yourself? I don't know. Uh, You got to get through it in that physical space and also in the emotional space. And, yeah, co- coming out the other end is a really, really powerful thing in relationships like that. Yep. Uh, oh, well, Anne, is there anything else that you would you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I always love talking with you because we go, we go all over the place and 
you're so articulate. I yeah, I I just want to go back to your book. I loved reading it. I mean, one of my favorite books was Canoeing with the Cree. And my dad gave it to me when I was a little, you know, pretty young. I think it was in high school. And I always wanted to do that trip. You know, we started by you reminding me of of being on the shores of the Mississippi. And I was watching the two of you get ready to launch. And just that excitement that I had for you, you know, all that was before you. And um, I just loved reading your book and feeling the parallels of our different, very different experiences, but um, many common threads from our friendships, you know, being forged deeper to, you know, unknown challenges to the way in which women receive women, uh, women doing these trips to just all of it. And uh, what a pleasure to read your version of, of that remarkable trip. Thank you, Anne. And I'm just so honored that you were able to write the foreword for it and really just be a great cheerleader throughout the years. I remember a very specific moment talking with you. It was before we were going off to do the Yukon River Quest with our team of six women. And we were going back and forth about why we should be doing it because we needed to raise money to be able to go and do it. And so our whole team was bouncing off, you know, different social justice ideas and environmental issues. And like, why are we going here and, and paddling, you know, 450 miles in 53 hours? Like, what can we get people excited about? And you had me over to your place and I was talking to you about it. And you said something that really, really made a difference for me and it was that like the trip itself is enough that you didn't need to add all of those other things to get people to care about it because other people are going to be so excited that you are doing it at all that you'll get the support that you need and now that I'm a little bit older and I have people reach out to me who are doing trips I just repeat that because it was so so helpful to me as someone who was constantly trying to make a difference in the world and do these larger expeditions to be able to know that just women going on trips was enough for people to get really excited about it and to to be able to support you and you have definitely done that for me and I am trying to pass that on now to women who are doing similar expeditions. So thank you for that, that nugget of wisdom that will live <laughs> on, hopefully. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you know, my, my uh, time is limited before a crying child and a dog come back. So <laughs> I should probably start to wrap things up here. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's always so fun. And I, I just really appreciate your support and your friendship. Well, uh, right back at you, girl. And uh, I, I said this to you before, but I I knew that that afternoon watching you guys on the shore of the river that uh, I would see you again. And that has come back in spades to be true. And how lucky am I? Thanks for <laughs> hanging out with me for this last 50 minutes. Oh, yeah, a great pleasure. For more information, visit z.umn.edu forward slash Hudson Bay Bound.